Amen. Thanks, Delia. Um, it is so great to be with you guys. Every time I get to be here, I absolutely love it. Um, but I got to say, because this is important, I have to say a special hello to all of you over at Central Abbotsford. Um, I went on to our, saw on our Instagram page at Northview, we made a post earlier today. You might have seen it. It said something like, these are all our service times. And at the top, there's this little kind of flickering thing. And it said, we have AC. And I laughed because there's actually no AC at Central Abbotsford. Um, so right now, uh, I hope you guys are okay. Um, it's going to be hot over there. So if you want to know what it's like to really be a hardcore Christian, you got to try out Central Abbotsford, okay? Um, anyway, I hope you guys are doing okay. Um, I feel bad because it's nice and cool in here, but uh, I'm sorry. Anyway, uh, I'm really looking forward to being in the Word of God together with you. So why don't you grab your Bibles and turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 4. Um, chapter 4. 1 Peter chapter 4. Um, my wife and I haven't been married all that long. It's been two and a half years, coming up on three. Um, but that relative to how long I've lived is a long time, right? Um, it didn't take very long after we got married for me to realize that I had been tricked. Um, she duped me. And she decided to withhold some pretty significant information about herself that apparently she knew was a deal breaker because otherwise she would have told me. Uh, I found out shortly into our marriage that Shalane absolutely hates action movies. <laughs> like, I'm talking Mission Impossible, right? I'm talking Lord of the Rings. She does not enjoy these movies, right? And I had all these wonderful dreams of our marriage, right? Or we go, oh, we're going to be Friday night, we're going to relax, let's throw on Mission Impossible, right? We got a weekend, what are we going to do? Lord of the Rings Marathon, right? What else do you do? Extended edition, of course. Um, I had all these dreams, and they're shattered. Absolutely shattered. So what do we do? Well, we watch the movies that we both really want to watch, right? Like The Notebook. Um, or Little Women, you know? Uh, and if, I mean, I got to be honest. If my wife was here, if Celine was here, uh, she would stand up and say, John, come on, be serious. You like those movies. Uh, and okay, all right. Well, I like good stories. Stories are good. You can't, can't fault me for that. Uh, but they're not movies I would choose, okay? Um, I would choose The Mission Impossible. But what we have found shortly in our marriage is that uh, there is a kind of movie that we both like, and this is good. We found some common ground. Um, we both have found that we enjoy uh, the, the on-the-edge-of-thriller kind of movies, and I'm definitely not horror. I'm not a horror movie guy. I cannot, I have no joy in them. Um, I watched like three when I was in high school with some of my classmates in school, and you know, you're with all your classmates, and I'm watching, you know, trying to make it seem like, yeah, I mean, you're laughing at it. Uh, and in my soul, I'm weeping because I just don't want to be there. Uh, I don't like horror movies. But thriller movies, for some reason, uh, just the, the, the constant anticipation that something's going to happen, right? Uh, and they do this brilliantly in movie making, right? The music swells, and you think something's going to happen, and then all of a sudden it cuts out, and there's no music. You think, well, something's going to happen. And you're constantly on the edge of thinking, when's it going to happen? And you're, you're, you're invested in the character, right? They, they're walking away from what they think is the danger, and then they pause, and they say, wait, oh, did, did you hear that? You're like, okay, well, if you heard something, uh, obviously that's not the time to stop. That's the time to keep going, right? You get invested because you're saying, listen, if you know there's danger, and as the movie watcher, I know there's danger, so the important thing for you to do is get out, run, flee. Um, that, that kind of angst that you feel when you're watching a thriller movie, even if you haven't seen those kind of movies, is an angst that you've probably felt at some point in your life, I would imagine. Um, maybe you've had some family who've said, you know what, we're gonna come over at three o'clock. Uh, and you, know, you get a text message at two o'clock and they say, hey, we got away early, we'll be over at 2.15. <clears throat> and 
and you panic, right? You jump off the couch, you're like, I haven't done anything. I gotta clean the floors, I gotta, what, what do I gotta do? What can you see? Get it off the counters, throw it away, right? Get whatever is in sight, out of sight. And then, you know, of course you grab your Bible, you sit out on your reading chair as if you've been there all afternoon. This is what you do. Yeah, it's the angst, right? Of I, something's coming and I gotta do whatever. What's important, I gotta get it done, right? You felt this if you've watched a Canucks game, right? It's three, two, third period. There's one minute left. And what are they doing? They're passing the puck, right? Just around, you know, it's just like they're kind of keep playing keep away for some reason. You're like, no, this, this is not time for keep away. You got a minute, shoot the puck. <laughs> you got one job, get the puck in the back of the net. Let's go to overtime, okay? And, but you just watch them and they don't do that, of course. Uh, it's the angst, that you feel, that something's coming, something important. And so when that's, when that's real, you, you, you start to prioritize, right? You, you do the important things and you do them fast. <laughs> you do them right away. And that kind of angst is exactly what our passage is about today in 1 Peter. Uh, we as Christians have this, have this incredible knowledge of the next great event in history that is to come which is the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He will come again, he has promised us. But we don't know the day, we don't know the hour. And so we're, we're kind of left in this constant angst of something's coming. And what Peter is gonna say, okay, you know this is coming, so do the important things and do them now. And so uh, the message that I'm gonna give to you today from 1 Peter 4 is, is this, four things for you to do before the end of the world, okay? Four things to do before the end of the world with a bonus one, uh, but five sounds too long, so we're gonna go with four, okay? Four things. Uh, and let's, let's get started. First Peter chapter four, we're gonna start in verse seven, and here's my first point. First thing to do before the end of the world, uh, sober up, okay? Sober up. Here's how it goes. Um, the end of all things is at hand. Let's, this little phrase, <laughs> the end of all things. Ooh, is it not gonna work for me? Are you gonna be kind or unkind? Oh, you're gonna be unkind. Maybe not today. No. Okay, well, I'm gonna point at it. Uh, the end of all things is, that, that little phrase, the end of all things, uh, you and I read that and immediately, just because of the way that we learn words, uh, we read that as if that means that when, when everything's over, when the world is destroyed and our lives are gone, when it's all just over, right? The end of all things, it's coming at hand. It's coming soon. Uh, that's not what Peter's meaning by this little phrase. He means the, the end as in uh, the final purpose for all things, right? You know the phrase, the ends uh, justify the means or something like that, right? And by that, you're not meaning the end of something. You're meaning the goal of something. The goal justifies a means. That's what, that's what Peter is saying here. The goal, the final purpose for which everything was made is coming, and that final purpose, for some reason, when you and I look at that, and we know what it is, right? We know that the end of all things is gonna be the coming back of our savior, Jesus Christ. But for some reason, and I honestly think this is one of the greatest misunderstandings in Christianity today. One of the things that has been taken captive from you and me as a Christian is that when we read or hear about the end of all things and the coming of Jesus, I think we are prone to imagine that as a very scary thing. And I don't actually really want that to happen, right? Um, I grew up in just after the Left Behind movies came out. You, if you've seen them, you know, right? Uh, you can't watch those movies without feeling some sense of fear about the coming of Jesus. 
Uh, I was at a summer camp in Saskatchewan for uh, just serving for a week as a cabin leader, and they were telling me stories of not many years prior how they would pull, they decided as all these cabin leaders, they would pull this massive prank on all of their kids. And they would wake up, they set their alarm silently, got up in the middle of the night, and they put all their clothes out in their bed as if they were, you know, had been raptured. And they went, they even put clothes in the bathroom as if somebody was just on the toilet when it happened. And then they would blare this, this crazy alarm and wake all the kids up. And these kids, like you imagine kids, wake up in the middle of the night and they, they would always prime them with a little story. Hey, you know the end is coming and the rapture is gonna, you know, persecution, all these things. And these kids would wake up and they'd see their leader's clothes. And they'd run to the bathroom and there's clothes. And it, absolute sheer panic. I cannot imagine the trauma that those kids would have. But that was a, that was a prank at summer camp, right? The, the end of all things, for some reason in our minds, is is prone to be something that is scary. I don't want it to come. Well, you know, the interesting thing about those movies, Left Behind, is, you know, first of all, don't ever learn your theology from a movie. Can I say that? Um, some of you maybe, I, I know there's the, the, the TV show The Chosen is on right now. Um, some of you probably been watching that. It, there's some really great stuff in there. It actually gives you some thought-provoking things about the humanity of Jesus. But can I please urge you, don't learn your theology from a TV show. Don't learn your theology from a movie. Learn your theology from the word of God. Let him speak to you about what's true, okay? Always test what you learn against it, right? Um, so we have these movies that focus, like Left Behind, on all the people who are in the name Left Behind. But it doesn't tell you about how great it was for the people who wasn't. Not even part of the movie. You don't even care about that. That's not, forget that part. Now again, don't learn your theology from it. But that's not the way that you and I ought to think about the coming of Jesus. In Hebrews 9, this is one of those passages that speaks about it across the New Testament. Hebrews 9, this is what the author says. He says, and just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes the judgment. What's this, this judgment? Um, that's the day that all of us, when we pass away and Christ returns, every single one of us are gonna stand before Jesus himself and we're gonna be judged. Uh, and, and in Matthew, Jesus talks about the separation of the sheep and the goats, right? That there will be some who come to him and he'll say, listen, I never knew you. You never knew me, so be gone. But there will be others who have put their faith in Jesus Christ. And though they certainly haven't lived perfect lives, but because of what Jesus did on that cross for them and by their faith in him, they're covered with his righteousness. And the father looks at them and says, <laughs> you're in come into the joy of your master. That's, that's the judgment. We're all gonna stand before Christ one day. That will be it. But then he carries on. So Christ, so just as an appointed man for man wants to die, and then comes the judgment. So Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, notice that once, he's not gonna die again. He did it. Every sin you've ever committed never will commit. It's already been paid for. If you've put your faith in Jesus, you can bank on it. He, he died, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are what? Eagerly waiting for him. That's the attitude that you and I ought to have about the coming of Jesus. Not, boy, I don't want that day to come. Lord, would you wait till I die? That'd be great. No, God, I can't wait. I can't wait for you to come, for Christ to come. Because I think one of the reasons, and it's, it comes down to this, that the reason that we're afraid of it is because we totally haven't given it any thought about what it really means. When Jesus comes back, he takes us to go with him into the place where there are no tears, no sin, no nothing between you and your fellow man and fellow Christian where there's, 
there's just this judgment and there's this frustration and all that's gone. Every bit of it, the frustration you have in your work, the frustration you have in your family, all of that is gone. And you get to be with God forever and not floating on a cloud with a harp, la-di-da, no. In the new heavens and the new earth that God will make just for you and I to enjoy. It's magnificent. And it's everything that our hearts ought to groan for eagerly. So when, when Peter is saying, uh, listen, the end of all things is at hand, right? Um, therefore, be self-controlled, sober-minded, he's gonna go on. He's not saying, listen, be afraid. <laughs> be very afraid. Jesus is coming. And are you doing these things? Ooh, you know, that's not what he's saying. He's saying the end of all things is at hand, meaning the next great event in history is coming. So do the important things, do the things that get at the heart of the Christian life that you've been given to enjoy and do them now while you got a chance. This is a thing to be looked forward to, okay? But then he says, therefore, because this is at hand, therefore be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. These two words, self-controlled and sober-minded, any chance? Nope, nope. Self-controlled and sober-minded. Uh, are practically synonyms, just kind of on the edge of each other, going the opposite way. Self-controlled speaks to the presence of reason, right? You're a reasonable person. And to be sober-minded is the absence of unreasonableness, right? So you, you can see how they're, they're practically synonyms. To have reason and to not have unreason, right? Um, but this word sober-minded, I think is really, really important. Uh, it's an interesting way that he puts it. I think it's helpful because we, you and I use similar language to this. Um, we will talk about somebody who's young and they've met their person, right? Uh, they're going to spend the rest of their life together. Uh, we'll talk about them as being drunk in love, right? Ooh. And what we mean by that is that the love that they have for this person uh, has, has interrupted their ability to make sound decisions, right? They're not being smart. And so you, you, sometimes you step in, you're like, hey, dude, that just isn't smart, bro. Um, they're drunk, meaning they're, they're not in their body, right? Not, not, a, not sober-bodied, sober-minded, right? They're drunk in their minds. Uh, we talk about somebody as being drunk with power, right? They've, got, they, they've tasted what it's like to be in control and to make decisions for this big company. And now all of a sudden, they, their, their uh, decision-making ability is compromised because all they, all they want is that feeling again of having power. We talk about it in these different ways. Uh, so is it not entirely fair for us to, to realize that you and I can also be drunk with things like fear. That the deciding reason for which we, we go off and do whatever we do in our lives is that we're afraid. We're drunk with it. We're, our ability to make decisions is compromised because we're not dealing with reality anymore. We've just thought through all these different situations, what could happen, what maybe, and we're just entirely fearful. Is it not possible that we could be drunk with uh, pleasure or happiness, right? I'm just, I'm just thinking entirely about the next time I can get whatever it is I'm craving. I just want it. And so I'm not gonna make sound decisions. I'm drunk in my mind. I'm chasing after something that's not real. I'm not living in reality. And that's what, that's what Peter is saying. Listen, you need to be self-controlled and sober-minded. Don't don't let your mind get drunk with some version of reality that isn't real, right? So what he's saying is that if you and I don't anchor our minds, anchor our hearts and our thoughts 
in what is absolutely true, in an objective truth. When things happen in our lives, they're gonna sway us and move us like none other. Um, almost inarguably, okay, one of the best movies in the last 15 years is Inception. Okay, Any, you agreed? No? Okay, good, I got one person. Uh, it's a great movie, right? Every movie has potholes, I get it, totally. Um, but it's a great movie, right? The concept is they, get, they can get into somebody else's mind and be in their dream, and then you realize throughout the movie that you can get into a dream within a dream, and then into a dream within a dream within a dream. It's pretty magnificent. It's really cool when they're going down in these dreams. And what you, what you find, what they realize as they go dream to dream, is that from one dream in, time goes long, right? So like, I don't know what it is. 30 minutes in reality is like an hour down in the dream. And as you go deeper, time goes longer and longer and longer. And the movie uh, has the main character put together what he calls a totem, this little, this little wooden top. Because what he's realized is that when he's down in the dream, it is really easy to begin to think that this dream is reality. This is everything normal, nothing's changed. So I, can, I, I should live as if this is normal or the danger coming up and you get back into reality is thinking I'm still in a dream. And you do things in reality you shouldn't be doing because it's, it's reality, it's not a dream anymore. And so he takes this top and he'll spin it. And if it, if it falls over, it means he's, he's in reality, he's alive. He's not dreaming anymore. But if it stays spinning forever, yeah, well, he knows that he's still dreaming. What you and I need is a totem. When we're drunk with one thing or a next, the next, fear, power, love, anything, when we're not thinking straight, what we need is something that's gonna ground us in reality and remind us of what's true. What we need is the word of God to come and push back, right? So when we're consumed with accomplishment, when we think we're all that, right? I built this company from the ground up. I did all this work. I did all these great things. Well, you need, you need Psalm 127 to remind you that unless the Lord builds the house, the workers labor in vain. If God didn't come alongside and help you with your work, you would never have succeeded. Reality check. When you're consumed with the fear of not having enough, am I gonna have enough on the on my table to feed my family in the next day. And, and that becomes the, the, the drunkenness of your mind. It's this fear. What you need is the word of God to come alongside you. Of Hebrews 13, five and six. We, we quote this, but we don't catch all of it sometimes. He says, keep your life free from the love of money or free from what it can get you and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? When you're consumed with the direction that our nation is going, or the nation to the south, or the nations around the world, and you think, man, what kind of a world are my kids gonna be living in? I, what, this is absolute, what, whatever. If you begin consumed with the, with the direction of the nations, you need Proverbs 21 verse one to remind you that the king's heart, the president's heart, the prime minister's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he wills. And just like in the movie Inception, they don't realize that they're in a dream anymore. You just do the little check every now and then to make sure. Uh, sometimes it is incredibly difficult to know whether or not we've been consumed with fear or consumed with power or consumed with whatever else has taken our minds and drunken them up. 
And so you need to come back to the word regularly and let it remind you of what's true. You need to sober up. Okay? That's point number one. Point number two um, is my bonus. This is actually, let's, before we get bonus uh, number two, this is your bonus, okay? Right here. Uh, the end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled, sober-minded. Why? For the sake of your prayers, okay? The reason this is a bonus is because this isn't, this isn't the heart of the verse. He's saying be self-controlled, sober-minded. That's the imperative. That's what you gotta do. But then he says, for the sake of your prayers. Uh, the reason that this is a bonus, that I'm giving you this as a bonus, is because Peter's assuming that his readers are praying. I don't know if I can be up here today and assume that, that we're praying. And yet you, you, understand, the, you understand the logic here, right? Be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. If I'm, if I'm totally lost in reality and I'm not thinking straight, I, I'm gonna totally pray things that are not along reality. I'm gonna ask for things that I shouldn't even be asking for. That don't even make sense to be asking for. So why are you doing it? Straighten out your mind, sober up. So you can pray straight. But, but I want to urge this to you. I want to press this to you. We need to be a praying people. We have to be. Uh, I, think, I think John Calvin is, is exactly right when he says that prayer is the chief exercise of faith. When he says that, he, he means that uh, faith expresses itself first and foremost in prayer. Because when you pray, you're, you're saying three really significant things. You're saying, first of all, God is real. Second of all, that God hears me. And third of all, that God will actually respond to my prayer in some way. And when we don't pray, we're saying, well, I don't think God's actually gonna do anything. I don't think God actually really hears me anyway. Really, practically, uh, it's as if God doesn't exist. We have to be praying people. That's your bonus, okay, that was extra, all right? So on to point number two. Uh, we gotta sober up, and then secondly, oh, this is a little more. Uh, secondly, we have to love one another, okay? So he says this, carries on. Above all, so you, this, is, this is important, that's saying this is, this is significant. Above all, this is most important. Keep loving one another earnestly. So notice the word here, uh, loving, not tolerating, okay? We'd love, to, we'd love it if it said that. It, doesn't, it says loving. Uh, keep loving one another earnestly, uh, right? I, I mean, zealously, intentionally. I, I'm going to love one another uh, since love covers over a multitude of sins. Now, uh, you, might, you might be here, and if you're relatively new to Christianity and all you've kind of known of it is what you see on Instagram or, you know, you have some friends at the workplace and the, you hear what they talk about, you probably read something like that and you're like, ah, of course, the lo love one another. This perfectly fits into my picture of Christianity that's all about, you know, the personality test and my essential oils, right? That's the Christianity that we all know, right? And so we read something like, keep loving one another, and you're like, well, you got to know that I'm an entrepreneur personality type, and so the way that you can love me is by doing X, Y, and Z, right? This is what we, this is what we think of when we read, keep loving one another. Um, that's not what he's talking about. Uh, though I'm not saying those things are bad. Don't, don't hear that. But when he says, keep loving one another, what kind of love is he talking about? What kind of love should you and I show to one another? Well, it's the kind of love that covers over a multitude of sins. This language, um, to cover, to cover something over is, is rich biblical language. 
it goes right back uh, to Genesis chapter three after Adam and Eve have, have sinned, right? Their hearts turn away from a desire for God and they desire what they think this fruit can give them. And so they take it and they eat it. Um, and it says that they were ashamed and they, they go and they sew fig leaves together, right? They were ahead of the curve. They had organic clothing before it was cool. Um, and then it says that the Lord took animal skins and clothed them. He covered them. God covers their shame in Genesis 3. In Leviticus 16, the high priest would go into the, into the tabernacle and he would take the blood of a sacrifice and he would pour it over the altar and it would cover over the altar to symbolize its covering over of the sins of the people. And that picture takes us to Jesus hanging on a cross whose blood poured out covers over the sins of his people. So when he's saying, Peter's saying, love one another, he's talking about that kind of love, the love that covers over sin, right? So what's common between all three of those pictures I just gave you, right? Genesis, uh, an animal's killed, and the skins are put over Adam and Eve. In Leviticus, there's a sacrifice put to death, and the blood poured over the altar, and Jesus dying on the cross. What's common between all those pictures? Someone or something dies. There's a sacrifice made in order for love to be expressed in that way. So the love that he's talking about here isn't the, the airy-fairy, oh, I love you kind of love. This is a love that's willing to sacrifice its own self for the sake of another. That's the love he's talking about. And, and just, to, just to put a point on it, in John, John 3, 13, 34, 35, Jesus is talking to his disciples. He says this, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, there it is, just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. And by this, all people will know that you're my disciples if you love one another. Just as I have loved you, how has Christ loved us? How far did he go that he would love us? He dies on a cross to pay for our sin. That's how far he goes. And so that's the love that Peter's talking about, a love that sacrifices itself for the sake of another person. Um, when, I, when Shalane and I were just about married, we'd sat down with a few different uh, mentor couples that we kind of wanted to be a part of our life for a long time. And one of those mentor couples said to us, listen, this is, this is key. Do not keep score. Don't, don't you dare start in your mind thinking, I've done the dishes 13 days in a row. Uh, and he has not done it, right? Uh, how many times have I cleaned the toilet and I don't think he even knows where the brush is, right? And you start, you start keeping score, right? I'm up 13, he's down zilch. And what, what ends up happening, if this starts happening in your, in your marriage or in any kind of relationship, what, what happens if you start keeping score? Well, you're, you're probably gonna get resentful, right? Look at everything I've done for you and you don't even appreciate it, right? Uh, or you bring it to them. And you say, listen, honey, sweetie, uh, <clears throat> you need to know I've done the dishes 13 times and you haven't lifted a finger, right? And so how, what's your tactic? <laughs> what's your move? Guilt, lay it on, right? Make them feel real bad. And then they'll say, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'll, I'll do it, right? Don't, don't keep score. That's the advice that he gave me. I think, I think that's great advice for the Christian life. Don't keep score about the way that you've expressed kindness to somebody and they never reciprocated. Don't keep score. But we have a bit of a problem with this kind of love, a love that covers over, um, covers over sin. Because on the one hand, we begin to think, well, okay, wait, wait a minute. Uh, does that mean that I never confront them about their sin? 
Uh, and that's not what Peter's saying. But what Peter is saying uh, is that when you and I are gonna do what the Bible calls us to do, which is to, to urge the people of God away from its sinfulness, is to do it in the way that Jesus would do it and not the way that you and I would naturally do it, right? What's our tactic? Guilt, lay it on. Make them feel real bad. Come before someone and say, you know what? You've been doing this thing. In the word of God, it says, don't do that. Do you know who your savior is? Do you know how much he had to suffer and die so that you wouldn't sin and look at you, right? You're just laying it on him, laying on the guilt. How, do, how would Jesus do it, do you think? One of the, the best story in the New Testament about how Jesus calls his people out of its sinfulness is in John 21. You know, you know Peter, right? Bold Peter, we love the guy. Um, the night that Jesus is crucified and he's arrested, he denies Jesus three times. I don't even know him. Honestly, if, if you want, for those of you in the room who have a family member who has walked away from the faith, if you want encouragement, look at Peter's story. He got as close to apostate as you could possibly get. He said three times, I don't even know God. I don't even know him. And yet in John 21, Jesus has resurrected and Peter's out on a boat and John's on, or Jesus is on the beach. Peter sees him, dives in the water, comes to the shore and Jesus is sitting there. And what does Jesus do? Does he lay on the guilt? Listen, Peter, how dare you? Come on, I'm God and you left me. No. He looks him in the eye and he says, Peter, do you love me? And he says it three times. Peter, do you love me? Peter, do you love me? The way that you and I invite people out of their sinfulness is not by coming and laying down the hammer of guilt. Do it like Jesus did it. Come and say, listen, you know this. You know what the, what the word says. Let me show you. I say this because I love you, but do you love him? Because the way that you're living, I, I don't know if it says it. And if the spirit of God has brought life into their soul, it's pretty hard to turn that down. Though it might take time. It might take a long time. That's how Jesus would do it. Yeah, yes, confront sin, right? Matthew 18, if somebody sins against you, go one-on-one -on -one and then bring them between, bring two or three witnesses, then bring them before the church. This is, this is what Matthew, Jesus says in Matthew. But the way that we do it is the way that Jesus would do it. Peter, you love me. Okay, that's our problem number one. Problem number two uh, is that if we love this way, um, it sounds entirely self-exhausting, doesn't it? Like, what do I get out of that equation? Okay, so, so, you know, take that little picture. I've done the dishes 13 times. You're telling me that I should just love them in such a way that I'm gonna give up my own right, you know, to not have to do the dishes every now and then and just keep on doing them, even if I, you know, lovingly say, hey, would you mind? You're saying I should just keep on doing it? I'm saying, yeah. Because I think that's what Peter's saying. Uh, there's a great quote from this, this old pastor named Henry Skugel. I say old, old as in he was in the 1600s, but um, he was a young man. He died at 28, which uh, should be sobering for a 27-year-old. Um, he said this, okay? This is, a, this is a great quote. He says, perfect love is a kind of self-dereliction and emptying out of ourselves, it is a kind of voluntary death wherein the lover dies to themselves and all their own interests, neither thinking nor caring about themselves anymore and being mindful of nothing other than how they may please and gratify the person whom they love. Thus, they are quite undone unless they meet with reciprocal affection. 
Hear what he's saying? Uh, perfect love is entirely emptying yourself out for the other person such that if they didn't love you back in the same way, you're hooped. But you and I can love one another and love the world in this way. Why? Because we know with absolute full confidence that Christ first emptied himself entirely in love for us. We will never go unsatisfied because he has said, I'll give you everything you need. Right? So even though we want to say, well, what do I get out of it? The challenge is you, you've gotten everything from Jesus. And he sends you and says, go love like I do. Empty yourself. Um, point number three. So I was love one another. Point number three, um, be hospitable to one another. Show hospitality. Oh, here it is. Verse nine, show hospitality to one another without grumbling. Hospitality in the, old, in, in the, the time that this was written. Uh, think of somebody who, the gospel was so new, right? It's still going off across, across the nations. And so somebody who would come into a town preaching the gospel would show up. There's no email. There's no text message. You don't call ahead to the phone you know, directory at the church and say, hey, I need a place. You walk into town and you show up at church and they say, yeah, I need a place to stay. And they would say, yeah, come on over. Stay with me, eat my food. That's the kind of hospitality. But uh, <clears throat> the kind of hospitality he's talking about here uh, is the kind that would potentially induce grumbling. Okay? That's not the happy kind of hospitality that you're all dreaming of right now. Um, uh, my family, for years, we went to the small church in Jasper, 20 people, and we would go out for lunch after service every, every, Saturday, every Sunday. And uh, I'm used to Saturday church. I go to Central Abbotsford. Um, we would, after Sunday, we would go out for lunch. It's a great place. Skillet was amazing. Loved it. Uh, we dreaded when this particular woman, she's a lovely woman, would come to church because my parents, being the people they were, uh, were so kind to always invite her out to lunch. And we hated it because it was awful. Uh, this, she would start with these stories uh, that were absolutely wild. And you're like, that's kind of cool. And the third time you heard them, you're like, this isn't, this isn't cool anymore. Uh, and she'd just keep on talking. Um, we grumbled. Oh, we grumbled a lot. But that's the kind of hospitality that Peter's talking about. So you and I are prone to look at verses that say, be hospitable to one another and look and say, okay, well, yeah, I have my friends over every Sunday, right? Every Friday night, we get the, we get the clan together and we go and we have fun. We, right, okay, well, hang on. Uh, do you do that with any chance of grumbling or is that just a party? Like, are you just hanging out with your friends now? That's great. Hang out with your friends. Peter's saying, listen, be hospitable to the people that when you have them over, there's a real chance you might be grumbling about it. Right? And I'm, ta I'm talking for real. The, the people down your row you've never met with, that you're like, you know, I don't even know if I want to have a conversation with those people. Maybe, just maybe, those are the people Peter's talking about and saying, you know what? Have them over. Be, be brothers and sisters in the faith together. Share your table with them. At one point in Jesus' ministry in Luke 6, he's talking about, listen, um, don't, don't lend money to somebody that you know is gonna give it back. Even the sinners do that, right? Don't have somebody over to your house that you know is gonna have you back over to their house. Uh, even the sinners do that. They get their reward. And then he says, love your enemies. <laughs> he's saying, listen, be hospitable to the people that you don't think you even have a chance of getting anything back for it. Those are the kind of people you need to be hospitable to. Um, and finally, Serve one another. Uh, as each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks the oracles of God. So uh, notice, notice that uh, Peter just assumes that every single person in this room, if you're a Christian, you have a gift. 
The Spirit of God has empowered you for a unique work of service in his church. That, that's true, whether you believe it or not, that's just what the Bible says. Everyone has a gift. So use it to serve one another as good stewards. That's, that's economic language. He's like, like, steward it well, right? As if you're gonna try and save money and you're gonna try and multiply it so that it can, you can get a good return on your investment, right? Do that with your gift. Use it such that it actually starts to do something because you have it. And then, he, and then he uses this little distinction. He talks about whoever speaks as one who speaks the oracles of God, meaning those with the gifts that are, are speaking gifts, speak out as if, as if you're God speaking to that person. And he goes on, he, he, the second category he uses are those who serve, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies. So uh, then he, he's got the teaching, the speaking gifts, and then he's got the, the serving gifts. And he says, listen, serve as if you have the strength of God in your bones and do this. Why? So that in everything, God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. So that when you speak, you're, you're speaking God's encouragement to people's hearts. You're speaking God's word so that God gets the glory. And when you serve, you're serving with God's strength. So you say, listen, God gets the glory, right? Um, in, in Romans 12, this is one of the, one of the more uh, popular passages that talks about spiritual gifts. Um, I just, let, me just, let me just show you this to show you how important this is. So when Paul talks about it, he says, by the, by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment. That's interesting. That seems to have come up again. Um, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. So, so listen, God's given you a gift, but don't think, woo, I'm all that. That's awesome. No, sober judgment. Come on. For, as in one body, we have many members and the members don't all have the same function. So, we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members one of another. Listen, uh, if I'm gonna go and be a baseball player, uh, I'm relying, when I throw my ball, I'm relying first on my wrist, but if I'm relying on my wrist to do its work, I certainly need a, a, a good bicep to be doing something back there, right? Which I don't have, but if I did, it'd be doing something to help me out. I'm relying on it. If I don't have the bicep and I just got the wrist, I'm throwing it, I, I'm not throwing nothing, right? It's gonna be like 10 miles per hour. Like I rolled it. And he says, having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. If prophecy in proportion to our faith, there's a, there's a speaking gift. If service in our serving, there's a serving gift. The one who teaches in his, there's a speaking gift. The one who exhorts in his exhortation, another speaking gift. Exhortation is kind of like a, in some way, a, a pressing back to the way people assume, kind of challenging, but in a, in a kind, encouraging way. A strong word. The one who contributes in his generosity, it's a serving gift. The one who leads with zeal, serving gift. The one who does acts of mercy with cheerful, serving gift. Listen, um, Peter is saying, because we don't have a lot of time, <laughs> because the, the return of Christ is at hand, don't, don't leave your church hanging. We're trying to throw a ball and the bicep's not showing up. So we're rolling it. Where has God uniquely gifted you? Is it encouragement? Is it service? Is it teaching kids in our children's ministry? Is it hanging out with kids? Is it, is it greeting? So what, what is it? Where has God served or gifted you in a particular way? Whether through your mouth or through your, your work, you glorify him because he's given you the words, he's given you the strength. We need you to use your gifts.
Otherwise, our body's incomplete. So use your gifts. Um, we, know, we know that the day that Christ is coming uh, is coming soon. We, we don't know when. Uh, the church has known it's coming soon for 2,000 years, and he hasn't come. But any day, any hour, he's coming. The end of all things is at hand, Peter says. So don't panic. Don't run off into the woods and abandon us, please. Do the important things. And do them now. And this is Peter's list. You want to know what the basic Christian life is. This is it. It's that you would sober, sober up in your mind, that you would love one another, serve one another. I just missed one. What did I miss? Sober up. Be hospitable to one another. Thank you. Be hospitable to one another. See, we need every part of the body to do its part. That's a speaking gift right there. I needed that today. Um, oh, I'm, over, I'm over my 40 minutes, but that's okay because we got, I got one last thing I need to say to you. Oh, I, don't, I can't draw. Darn. Can I? No, there's no hope. This is unfortunate. Okay, I, you, I'm going to test your imaginations, all right, because this is important. So I was a part of this great book study this summer. I don't know how many of you part, were a part of a book study. I was part of a great one. I was leading us through the, uh, the screw tape letters by C.S. Lewis. It's awesome. You need to read it. At one point, Lewis is saying, listen, uh, the concept of the book is a senior demon trying to teach a younger demon how to, how to work with his human patient. And at one point he says, listen, you got to realize that humanity is basically like this. Uh, okay, here's your imagination. Uh, it's as if there's a small circle on the inside. Imagine a bullseye, small circle, okay? And that's the will, Right at the center of humanity is their will. And then there's the next circle, a little bit bigger outside of it, and that's their intellect. And finally, the largest circle on the outside is the fantasy. And he says, listen, here's your goal as a demon. Uh, you're going to take all the Christian things that they learn about, and you're going to push them right out to the outside of that circle so that they're always in the fantasy. So that you're going to hear something like this and you hear, oh yeah, okay, so I need to sober up. I need to love. I need to be hospitable. I need to serve one another. That sounds great, right? You know, when I get the opportunity, when someone comes along and says, hey, would you help us out in some way or another? And they talk to me personally. Yeah, maybe then I'll serve. Sure, I'll totally do it. What have you done? You've entirely put this in the fantasy. Well, I, I would totally do it if the, you know, if so happened, it would, you know, come up. But I'm not going to go and do it on my own decision. I think one of the things that stays in the fantasy the most for Christians, quite frankly, uh, is forgiveness and asking for forgiveness. Because we think to ourselves, listen, that friend I knew 30 years ago, if he shows up, you know, like he said, he comes up at my door and says, hey, how are you doing? I'd say, sure, come on in. And I'd probably apologize or I'd forgive him, whatever the story is. Uh, well, what have you done? You've entirely left it in the fantasy. You're not actually gonna do it. You just think of yourself good because you would do it if it came up. So how do you take something like this, like all these things that Peter's just given to us and press them from the outside, from the fantasy of, yeah, it'd be great to do it, inside to the intellect of, I know I should do it, and it makes sense for me to do it, right down to the very center of that bullseye to say, no, I, I want to do it, and I'm going to do it. Um, I, went to, I went golfing with a friend of mine just this last week, uh, the people at Central Abbotsford are probably groaning because I've realized the last few sermons, I've talked about golf in almost all of them. I think I have a problem. 
Um, but I was out on the golf course with a buddy and he stood up on the tee box looking over the fairway. And it was a beautiful day. He was playing a good round of golf, honestly. And he, he just stood there holding his clubs and he said, man, I love golf. And that probably wouldn't shock you, especially, I mean, he was having a good round. But uh, that would shock you if you knew, if you heard him talk about his childhood learning how to golf. He absolutely hated it. Like he, hate, he dreaded his dad taking him out to the golf course and teaching him to swing and all the, oh, all this stuff. But now after years of just doing it and learning and learning, he's now gotten to the point where he stands on the tee box. He said, I love this. I love this game, right? If you ever took, right? If anybody in this room has taken piano lessons, you've known that moment, right? I was there. I took piano lessons and one day I said to my mom, mom, I don't want to do this. This absolutely sucks. And she let me stop and I didn't. But now years later, I wish I'd stuck with it. Honestly, I'd love to play piano, but I didn't. I just, I just gave up. In order for you and I to take these things that Peter is saying, listen, here, here's your summary. Here's the important things. Do them now. To take them from the fantasy and push them down to the will is that you and I need to be convinced that God really is who he says he is. He's being honest when he says, Jesus says, listen, the enemy comes to steal, kill, and destroy. I'm here to give you life to the full. And then the whole rest of the New Testament is him laying out, here's life to the full. And he says, this is life to the full right here. If you would do these things and do them now. But you and I stand back and be like, ah, I got so many other things to do. I got great things. I got a round of golf to play, right? Right, I don't want to do these things. And yet, if we really believe God to be who he is, loving and kind and good, and that he actually wants us to enjoy the life we were made to live, we look at these things and we say, okay, even though right now I don't, I don't like, I don't, I'd rather maybe do something else. I'm just going to do it anyway. I'm going to do it. And 10 years down the road, you and I might be standing on that tee box, looking over the fairway saying, I love golf. I love my church. And I love my savior, Jesus. At the start, it's never going to be easy to just do these things. But, but if you believe God, when he says, this is life to the full, and he lays it out for you. Go for it. Do the important things. Do them now. Let me pray. God, we're thankful for your word uh, in every way that it pushes and prods and encourages and challenges. Uh, but we're especially thankful, God, for the way that you have, in your word, made yourself known to us. Uh, we read of these things about being loving and hospitable. And the reason that you call us to it is because you're inviting us to be just like you. You're a God of love, a God who, who has uh, prepared a place for us, not only hospitable, you're giving us a home. Uh, you've loved us in, in such a way that, that your blood poured out. And so we thank you, Lord, for the way that we've seen you in this word. I pray that you would encourage us all, that you would uh, strengthen us all, to do these things, to do them as, as soon as we can and to not leave them in this fantasy uh, in our minds thinking that we would one day, but help us to do it now. So God, we're, we're thankful to be together. We're thankful we get to sing. We're thankful we get to hear your word. Would you bless us now as we sing again? And we pray in the name of Jesus, amen.